needles clunking. My art of war, mental function. Got beyond some out the door, about to settle something. Whatever it is, whatever it was. When these wolves get the scent of blood, they never give up. I'm sick of these whack bitches who got no idea what it's like to be broke as fuck with dope ideas. You don't know what it is to be hungry on the ones on the humble. Low down, limping with a stumble. Peep the gates we keep, we awake, you sleep. No key, still low key, we break the beat. The wolves ate the sheep, kid talk is cheap. Money talks, but money scared to walk the streets. All I used to need was dungeon noise, bass drums, and we prepare for war. When I was young and I was climbing trees to reach the top, my race had chopped all these blind MCs out the speaker box. A shadow box, all your frequencies, your punch drunk. Drunks get punched the fuck out and punked, it's hardcore. More than an art form, it's all a war, it's life or death. Escape the viper's nest, the carnivores from haunted shores. Ghost pirates swarming, one in yours. Now, how the fuck am I not music to the struggles here? My tongue is steel, cut the strings to the puppeteer. I walk the line blindfolded with no lights on. When the mic's on, it's countdown till your life's gone. Welcome back to Black Hoodie Alchemy, folks. I am Anthony Tyler. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, we have a very special guest in today. We'll get to that gentleman in just a moment so today um we're gonna talk about philip k dick i i'm sure that i'd be surprised if there's anyone listening to this show that was unfamiliar with philip k dick but um i think most people if you're familiar with the name at all you know you know blade runner you know we go through the movies real quick uh his his works that inspired the movies that you We'll have at least heard of uh, Blade Runner, Total Recall, Minority Report, Paycheck, and A Scanner Darkly. Um, we also are going to talk a little bit about Elvis here, um, mostly going to be Philip K. Dick, but I have a man that has been very steeped in some Elvis esoterica here on the show with me, and he's got a, a book coming out next year with a legit publisher and everything about this subject, so we can't not talk about it. I'm excited to get into both of these subjects. Uh, we got Miguel Connor here of Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio. How you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. Yes, the empire never ended, as Philip K. Dick said. One of his more famous quotes and seems to be more relevant than ever, that meme about how, how often men think about the Roman Empire has become so viral. And <laughs> as I say, the empire never ended. Rome still exists underneath this hologram. It's so true. Yeah, yeah. Um Philip K. Dick was a guy, He, you know, it's easy if you only hear the surface level of his story, uh, his his biography and his life philosophies. It might be quick to say, like, oh, man, that guy was falling really far off the deep end. But then you listen to uh, some of the preserved interviews that he had or you go and read what we'll get into a bit more. Uh, Philip K. Dick's exegesis, which is a lot like Carl Jung's black books. It's a, it's this alchemical, uh, massive tomb of, uh, Dick just wrestling with his, uh, personal philosophies. But, uh, so the more you look into how he articulated these really wild, uh, concepts, you know, uh, of time and space and metaphysics, um, you find that, you know, he was so cogent throughout the whole thing. So you could certainly argue as Dick, um, you know, was the first to admit the possibilities of that there was some sort of, you know, neurological issue going on, some temporal lobe, um, epilepsy, potentially, um, 
or uh, not epilepsy. Yeah, I think uh, that was tossed around a bit. Yeah, different neurological possibilities. Um, I heard in an interview, he he hypothesized, you know, how, how what the implications would be of like his his uh, right and left hemispheres interacting with each other in a very union projective sort of sense. Uh, he was really open to a lot, and he also talked about Jung a lot, especially in uh, this one particular in- interview. It's like two hours. I'll put that in the show notes here. Um, but I've listened to that many times. I find it to be very insightful. And he, uh, I think if we were going to put this in terms of vernacular that we use here on this show, like I said, it's very similar to uh, Jung's red and black books. It's the same sort of motif of what he was trying to work through. And the the tutelary encounters with this uh, this entity, essentially, uh, Philip K. Dick was a very mystical, mystically minded individual. Um, it seems to be very, very directly like if Jung were diagnosing Philip K. Dick, he would say without question that this was a very powerful ongoing interactive relationship with his anima um so and he all uh dick uh described this tutelary deity entity if you will being feminine uh but there's a lot to unpack here we'll get into all this uh miguel to to give context for listeners here um that you know may only just understand the surface level how would you try and broach this subject Dick's visions or what subject exactly? Well, that's a good question because this is a very sprawling subject. And, um, you know, we'll get into a little bit of uh, Philip K. Dick as a person and different things. But but yeah, let's let's dive into it. Let's dive into the meat of it here and uh, and talk about yeah some of his visions like this one, the, the pink laser beam. That's the one that uh, if you're going to look into anything mystical about pkd uh you find commentary on this concept um this this experience he had uh pretty quickly yeah i would uh i know that one's the fabled famed one the 2374 right although uh what most people get wrong is that there was no pink beans i think the pink beans came later while he was listening to uh, Strawberry he- Strawberry Fields Forever by the Beatles. Mm. And he saw this like strawberry light and he had this vision saying that his son was very sick, had, I think, a hernia and needed to be rushed to the hospital. And Dick, he was listening with his headphones and he pulled his headphones. He went to Tessa Dick, his wife at the time, and said, uh, our son's going to die. Uh, we need to go to the hospital. Tessa uh entertained his uh his idea and uh <clears throat> once they got to the doctor it, w- it was exactly right he was able to predict his son's uh his son's uh hernia and they operated and it actually saved the kid's life so 2374 came before and that's the famous one with the uh, the light with the light shining off the woman's fish necklace and suddenly the hologram came down well, well, you know the story. He, he was having a, he had a toothache, and he, um, and he asked in the days where you could uh, get drugs from the pharmacy, nobody asked questions. <laughs> uh, so they brought. So this lady delivered these drugs for his toothache, and he opened the door, and he looked at her fish necklace, the you know the Christian fish Jesus one, 
and there was some sparkling in it and all of a sudden it hit him and reality collapsed and uh, he had this vision that we were indeed again uh, the empire never ended we were living in roman's time it was a holograph that the roman empire created to uh continue its power sort of uh behind the scenes and every empire that has existed is the roman empire and and uh, phil saw himself as the apostle paul part of these thick secret christians that were trying to fight uh the roman empire and these powers above them which of course the gnostics call the demiurge and the archons these extra terrestrials interdimensional beings that were ruling this earth and keeping mankind asleep uh the funny thing is tessa dick swears that he wasn't really looking at her necklace that he was looking at her tits because yeah, she was well. I mean, that's what she said, and that's what caused the vision. So I'm like, yeah, that's fine. We're men, you know. Things like that happen. Yeah. But um, and it's always hard when I mean, as uh, when you do these biographies, because there's always conflicting stories. And of course, Dick was just uh, as a writer, he tended to embellish. He tended sometimes to change details, or he would replace what happened to him with the story of another author. Uh, he was basically, yeah, Dick was a, a troller, a shit poster sometimes when he felt like it. Uh, I've noticed too, writing this Elvis bio, Elvis was the same way. And how many people, the stories don't align and we do the best. And uh, as I write in my book, Elvis Presley and Philip K. Dick have such similar eerie parallels, um, Interesting. which we can get into. Uh, I mean, um, but the main, the one thing that most people always sort of overlook is that that's not really his first most uh, impactful vision. He had one in the early 60s where he was, uh, he was going through a bad time in his life. He was getting a divorce. Uh, what was it? He was getting a divorce. I think it was his third wife. And he was uh, he was living in California, and he was uh, he had this little hut or a shack where he used to write. Yeah, he was getting a divorce from his uh, wife Anne, and he was taking a lot of amphetamines, and so he was going yeah. through a really bad time in his life. And um, he w- was walking to the shack to go write, and suddenly the face the the sky opened, and he saw this horrible dark face it was like metallic pure metal and it was pure evil he could sense this cosmic pervasive overwhelming evil that ruled the entire universe and he freaked out uh he was like he, he like ran off or something like that and uh he uh that really sent him on a rabbit hole because what happened he freaked out he went he told a psychiatrist about the vision but he also went to a priest at the episcopal church and the priest uh told him uh of course told him well it was probably satan all that he gave dick holy unction which is a special sacrament to heal the sick and and phil just kept thinking about this vision this uh whatever it was the demiurge satan pure evil that had appeared in the sky, but that led him out, led him down to understand. It led him close to the Episcopal Church. He joined it. He became a 
a full-time Christian, if you would, but he got really interested in the the uh, transubstantiation. I'm sure I'm, I'm mispronouncing it and the whole communion thing. But because of that, that led him to Jung and his ideas about communion and the host and all that. And that eventually led him into Gnosticism. So that's an important vision that most people forget about or overlook. Yeah, yeah. Um his uh his his metaphysical outlooks are really interesting because he he uh was fairly steeped on and off throughout his life like with direct christianity but then that uh that bled into like i guess what you would call a christian gnosticism um much more as time progressed and uh you know particularly in this interview that I enjoy so much. It doesn't even really have a name that I know of, but it, you know, it's around on the internet. Um, it right. shared around in, in several different forms. Um, but, um, you know, he's, he, he clearly is, uh, throughout his fascination with Christianity. Um, I'm, I'm sure he was probably, you know, born into it to one degree or another. He's always, uh, he maintained fascinations with, um, you know, Buddhism and you know Greek and Roman philosophy, and um, talks a lot about Gnosticism. So he's he's um, you know and, and you know and of course Jung as well. So he's very very well versed in um, comparative religious philosophy. And um, I also I have not read this book, uh, "Flow My Tears," the policeman said, but um, there's some interesting synchronicities around this book as well um that i found in my research uh, i've brought up to you before as well as you know at some point on this podcast um the anecdote that uh pkd gives about how he found a rat in his house and he tried to kill the rat over and over again uh because right. he was just trying to put it out of its misery and, you know and he laments i would have let this rat go if i could have but it was already caught by the trap and wounded so i just had to kill it and he said it was it felt just as torturous for him as it seemed to be for the rat and he felt monstrous and it brought him to this whole buddhist idea of you know could there even be a creator with this kind of suffering and it, and and it really uh it became a catalyst for his uh his fascination with the demiurge and explaining that vision of that face in the sky a bit more and um apparently and I don't really have a uh, further context to elaborate this, but he does go into uh, in the interview as I, I, I listened over it again recently that uh, the spirit of the rat, you know, so he buried that rat with apparently a St. Christopher medal, he says, and he put that character of the spirit of the rat in that book, uh, Flow My Tears, the policeman said. Uh, so that impacted him very deeply. And also that book has a reputation for being, you know, some people speculate that he, you know, channeled that in some way or another because he wrote it feverishly, extremely quickly. Um, didn't even really give it much thought after it was done. Just tried to put it out there, and um, it had a all the basic tenets of the book, um, the characters and the the double lives they were leading, the names of the characters and how they related to each other. Um, all ended up playing out in succession in his life in such a way that he ended up going to a priest about it and the priest told him that these um he didn't quite use this language but he said that you know you're the story you're describing and the synchronicities you have that relate to this book it all comes from um 
the book of Acts in the Bible. Um, and so that, you know, snowballed a lot further for him. But um, um, we also, I want, I, I'd like to pick your brain about Vallis because as I did a little bit of research, you know, I'm quite familiar with, uh, with Dick and his work, but uh, it's massive and intimidating. And I have not read Vallis. Uh, as I did the research, I came to realize that uh, that's something absolutely quintessential. Um, if you're trying to understand the philosophies of Philip K. Dick, I knew it was one of his greatest works and it was on my list, but but now I fully understand how essential it is. And it, there's a it's the Vallis trilogy, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, it's uh, Vallis, uh, the Divine Invasion and the uh, transmigration of Timothy Archer. And uh, <clears throat> they're not related. Vallis is Dick's exploration with uh, Christian Gnosticism. The Divine Invasion is his exploration into Jewish Gnosticism, the Kabbalah. Mm. And the the third book is more about uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and uh, reincarnation and dying. And there are three excellent novels. They were one of his last ones. And these were certainly fueled by his two three seventy four. In fact, uh, the the novel Valis does have Philip K. Dick and his alter alter ego uh, horse lover Fat, and it is a fiction, but it is just uh, full of his sort of side notes and philosophical quotes. It's got a uh, separate sections where he talks about what he did is as he was doing the exegesis, which was him just compiling all of his philosophies and visions and ideas into this massive uh, thousand-plus uh, page tome. He took a lot of those, and, and the most important, or at the time, the more salient ones, and he put them in Vallis. So Vallis was certainly my, um, you might say, crystallization or red pill to Gnosticism, because I'd been, at the time, years ago, I was reading uh, the Nag Hammadi Library, the Gnostic Gospels, and it was, uh, I was, it was moving something within me, but I still wasn't getting it. And Philip K. Dick's Val is definitely, uh, it was, uh, made it all clear as one of those aha, because he does such an excellent job, uh, throughout all of his career of tying in these philosophical, mystical, and ancient religion ideas into science fiction, modern themes, and so forth. And it just clicked so well. He was brilliant at it throughout his career, but yeah, towards the end of his life, he was certainly uh, he was certainly a Gnostic. Even in the exegesis, he says, uh, "I am a Gnostic, and I'm not happy about it." Simon <laughs> Magus lives, you know. He's he's understanding that he's embraced his Gnostic worldview uh, fully, of course, but he always considered himself a Christian and Episcopalian. Uh, but he sees really how the universe is structured is very. Uh, what works for him is how the Gnostics viewed the universe. Yeah, fascinating. Um, so what um I, I I don't think there's any yeah, I don't think you could really spoil something like this at this point. Um what um would you care to go into some of the contents of Valis? Because I I I know that that is um you know, aside from Blade Runner, which is the one that sticks in everyone's head the most, Valis seems to be the one that he's known for the most. Yeah. I mean, Vallis is very speculative and very, it tends to be surreal. It's about, again, Philip K. Dick with his alter ego and friends in California trying to deal with, uh, 
with issues in their life, but somehow this uh, they start seeing the reality about society, and then they uh, they they find that there's this savior figure called Sophia, which was very important to the Gnostics, mm-hmm. sort right. of a divine feminine counterpart of Jesus, um, and it's a story of them trying to see how Sophia will help the world and uh, other issues too. Then uh, there's obviously uh, David Bowie's The Man Who Fell to Earth is a bit, well, again, he calls it something else, but that's a big, another part, but it's very, uh, very uh, speculative and uh, again, non-linear. The version that he did, if somebody wants to read a more uh, traditional science fiction, version is get radio free album either the novel or there was a movie made of it hmm. and that is basically valis but all the mysticism and gnostic speculation <clears throat> is sort of taken out uh and then and then this is more of a hard-boiled science fiction about how we live in a dystopian oppressive world and these characters who are uh caught in the trap of some of these major players and how there's a revolution against to overthrow the tyrannical government that is, uh, that is ruling this country, uh, almost secretly. The president is, uh, basically part of this deep, dark organization and, and so forth. So if your readers want, uh, more, uh, something more traditional, do that. Like, for example, my co-host for, uh, Aeon Byte, uh, Vance, he likes uh, Radio Free Album with better, but I prefer Valis. But uh, both are very well written and very powerful and uh, very disturbing, too, because Dick does a great job at uh, really showing really the truth about our culture. It's that famous uh, thing by Ray Bradbury. I don't try to predict the future. I try to avoid it. Yeah. And that's what Dick does. And when you start reading Radio Free Albemuth or Valley, you realize you go, God damn, this is like USA 2023. So it's uh, <laughs> it's really uncanny. I don't want to give too many spoilers, but Dick was, uh, I think his brilliance wasn't just predicting what would happen. There's so much that he was writing about in the 50s, you know, face recognition, self-driving cars, spray-on clothes, uh, all that that he he really hit on the nail there's giant lists you can go on the internet but the truth is most science fiction writers the good ones you know they'll get 80 percent right dick was Mm -hmm. probably closer to 90 percent if you write enough you know it's like the simpsons they predicted the future well when you have like 500 episodes you're gonna get a lot right especially if you're trying to create a a satire or if you're trying to create a treatise on american culture but right. what dick did the best is he really predicted the atmosphere of where we lived um we're not really in an orwellian or an aldous huxley future yet we're getting there but we are more in a what dick did it's a very uh consumerist uh shallow world where our culture is just decaying it seems everything's broken our religions are broken our politics are broken our gods are broken and we just don't know what to do with it and there's sort of this duality where uh where he talks and you see it in blade runner right there are the technocrats who live very well and they're creating amazing things like rockets to the moon and all in space exploration and inventions. Yet there's 
this middle class and lower class that lives on the shadows and this uh, broke these broken down cities and streets and technology. It's kind of working. And the only one that really works well are surveillance tools and so forth. So, so Dick really gets the texture of where we are in the 21st century. Probably, I would say probably easily better than any other writer. Maybe others like William Gibson and so forth did a good job. But uh, he really nails where we're going and how we're just uh, living in this very, uh, I don't know what to say, melancholic, delusional, uh, decaying world where technology is just keeps moving forward, but society just keeps collapsing. Yeah. Um, yeah, Blade Runner... Uh... And that that whole story um, really articulates it well. That's burned in my brain so well. The book and the movie, um, I grew up with it. Uh, since a kid, I was really fascinated with how well that movie uh, blended, you know, the the glitz of technology with the the ruggedness of like dystopian noir, and right. uh, it is it's still pretty unrivaled. Um, but, yeah, you see this. You're starting to see this in San Francisco, New York, and Chicago. They're turning into Blade Runner sets, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, uh, when I finally read uh, "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep," I was actually bricklaying um, in like right outside of San Francisco. So I was working in San Francisco uh, for most of it, and I was even doing some work in the surrounding areas. So. It was especially interesting to me um, being able to see a lot of the actual places that he was referencing uh, in the book. And and it, and it just kind of uh, gave it a deeper significance for me. So I, I, uh, I, you know, I have a, a, a soft spot for, uh, for that whole story. Um, but as dark as it is, and for those of you, I know there's a lot of you out there that have seen Blade Runner and not read that book. Definitely read that book. It's not too long either. It's not like The Stand by Stephen King. It's like 250 pages or something. Um, It's a lot less. Yeah, and it's different than Blade Runner. But again, you've got this Dickian essence in it. Obviously, Ridley Scott changed a mm -hmm. lot of things. But Dick was happy. He was very happy. He got to see some of the first screenings and all that. And he was fine with it. But the true like Dickian soul is certainly very apparent in it obviously the big difference too is that dick in uh do android dream of electric sheep he never thought that um replicants or ai could be conscious that was one thing he was completely against while ridley scott went the other way it is ridley scott went the technocratic way and said oh of course they can you know the whole voin camp test which is basically an empathy test but Dick right. always thought that machines could never, he thought that what made us uh, human and that what made us divine, the idea that we had a divine spark or soul, was our ability for empathy. And he just thought that, that uh, no machine could ever have a sense of empathy. Very good point. Yeah, still highly debatable. Um, I would, I, I, I feel like I, I definitely lean more towards the, uh, the, the Dick side of the, the the debate but i don't know there's a there's a lot about technology that i do not understand 
yeah. Yo, it's like he's living in Cybertron. Uh, the homeless cycles and impersonators, vipers and them terminators, uh, fighters with the thirst for papers. Yeah. Where violent crime is common in the search for wages. Despite the times that yo, we find ourselves immersed in pages. Uh, trying to find a method to see his rhyme reflected. Design is faded, calculated rhyme that I suggested. The only factor in the climb is the time invested. But these are after in this prime that got his mind infested with the evils. This kid that got himself addicted with that lethal shit injected with the needles. Now he's well connected with the weasels, neglected by his people, disrespected and rejected by his equals. Son, they put him on blast. He walks the gravel on his own. They say he's just a brat to travel down the wrong path. So every night this kid fights with his likeness. His conscience tries to tell him that he's righteous. But my nigga, we recognize How'd it do, everybody? It's your good old friend Tippy Patson here from the, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And behold, for I have something to to lay upon you. Okay? Um recently I uh, I smoked this uh this drug called uh, uh a basuco. It's from Colombia. Uh my buddy gave it to me. It's cocaine paste. You see? Um and I recently been doing some of this and um, it occurred to me that last night after some Google searching um, what happened to me after smoking some bazooka was um, I achieved Tibetan rainbow body how about that y'all yeah my body shrank I got all real tiny uh, I started like emitting rainbows from my body and like I smelled really good as they say uh, that the people do and dang old man I even you know I didn't die I'm good I'm still good right here but I even lost a few pounds so I was thinking you know how about I just go dang old on and sell uh, Tippy Patson's Rainbow Body Weight Loss Program dang old man that's right you know shed a few pounds the, the Tibetan Buddhist way and uh, you know you can go to my website um uh, Tippy Patson and all that, or you can dial 1-800-SpaceLawyers.com uh, for more info. Now, um, a part of this is uh, you need to know more about this Basuko drug, okay? Um, it's very interesting, and uh, it helped me in the whole process of achieving Rainbow Body. Uh, and it's, like I said, it's a cocaine paste. Um, it's extracted, not in laboratories, but like good old fashioned, like in people's kitchens and stuff. And it's, uh, it's, uh, extracted and dissolved with, uh, things like gasoline, sulfuric acid, chloroform, kerosene, uh, acid from car batteries. And then it's, and then it's cut, you know, to make bigger, uh, and give it a little bit of a punch, um, with Ajax, uh, talcum powder. Or, you know, ground up bricks or cornstarch and things like that. And on the streets, they call it things like uh, Suzuki, uh, Banana, Little Devil, and Freckles. So it's a real dang old fun thing to smoke, and it tastes real good, y'all. So, you know, smoke some bazooko and, uh, you know, partake in Tippy Patson's uh, Rainbow Body Weight Loss Program, y'all. Come on, let's do it together. We'll, uh, we'll be small, tiny people... Uh, with a rainbow body away, and then we'll, you know, it'll be a good time. All right, take it easy, everybody.
Has gravity got you down? Do you not understand the difference between a wave or a particle? What about the planets? How do all those rotate around each other? Laws of physics and other sciences can be confusing. So the next time you're curious just how exactly E equals MC squared, hire a highly trained and qualified professional. That's right, it's space lawyers. Space lawyers are skilled in litigation with the laws of time, space, cosmic ghost pirates, and various other lawyerings. Each space lawyer has a PhD in space law from the Cosmic Hall of Space Justice, and they can get you out of just about any sticky situation. So stop bonking your head on things, or accidentally creating big bangs with your haphazard studies in quantum, quantum physics. physics. Leave all of that to the highly trained professionals prepared to litigate these laws for you. Just call 1-800-SPACELAWYER.COM for more info. Space, Space Lawyer? Lawyer? Space lawyers cannot be used in a regular court of law. They can only accept cash and no cosmic traveler checks nor visa debit cards. Please wait up to four cosmic business days for our space lawyers to get back to you. Hello, everybody. It's, uh, it's your friend, uh, Jefferson. Tillamook Slinger, codename. Yeah, uh... I uh, I don't have any products to sell you at the moment, but I did have to. Uh, I just wanted to uh, let everybody know that I recently watched this uh, Aminal Planet documentary about how mermaids and mer people actually exist, uh, and also dragons exist too. I mean, Aminal Planet wouldn't make these things up. It's very 100% true, or just about as true as a Bill Hicks being Alex Jones. So, supposedly the theory is, uh, when we were, when we were, used to be the monkeys, um, some of the monkeys, like, ended up hanging up close to the water, and, like, instead of getting all hairy, they got it really scaly, and, like, had a bunch of, like, gills and, like, fins and stuff, like, really crazy, and, uh, in the, if you watch the Aminal Planet documentary, um, they have like these super realistic, uh, like accounts where you could see like the mermaid, like his, his hand, his little webbed hand is up against the glass, and like it's like very realistic, like like the best PS2 cutscenes I've ever seen in my life. Uh, so uh, I guess mermaids are actually a thing, you know mermaids and mer people so uh is it illegal to own one is the question i want to know i would like to own a mer person i know we couldn't have the dolphins around here anymore but maybe a mer dude would be pretty fun or maybe a mer lady i'm not sure i guess we could cross that bridge when we get there anyway um mer people are people too so, and dragons exist. So, pretty crazy shit. Uh, goodbye. Thank you. Play bottle. It was a stone group, my man. You are the most right. Yeah, right, just get the fuck out, man. Let's go. I have some... 
some quotes here. This is uh, this is just a very small little bit that I read from an article. Um, I'll have it in the show notes. Ryan Britt, whoever he is, shout out to him because I thought it was it was a very concise quote. And uh, I wanted to read just for anybody. It's not a word that you hear hardly ever outside of the conversation of Philip K. Dick, uh, but exegesis. Uh, in the dictionary is a critical explanation or interpretation of a text, especially of scripture. So it's pretty much exactly what we've been saying, him just really wrestling, um, you know, with no discernible end in sight, uh, all these different concepts and experiences that he had. And this quote here, it says, uh, you could go so far as to say that Philip K. Dick at some point in his life refused to actually understand the differences between art personal interactions, reality, conciseness, and unconciseness. Uh, if forced to oversimplify his ideas via his own uh, preserving machine, which is uh, a reference to another work um, that he gave in the uh, in the little um, article here, says, I would characterize the exegesis of Philip K. Dick as follows. If thoughts created the universe instead of physical objects, uh, this is the entire universe wrapped up in a triple-decker sandwich, which has infinite length. The sandwich also may or may not be conceptual. <laughs> so take that for what you will. Uh, for such a rambling, um, like, multi, like thousand-page work, uh, that was the only person I found that was even willing to take a stab at trying to synthesize what the fuck the exegesis is even about. <laughs> so, um, yeah. But and it's um, hard because it's even contradictory because he's again mm -hmm. he's trying to interpret his vision. <clears throat> he he two three seventy four and uh, the strawberry field one were so monumental and there were some other ones and of course this goes all back to the face in the sky vision. Uh, those are the only ones he had and he was he was frustrated so he just kept he kept like Ewing he kept attacking it he kept saying it could be this it could be extraterrestrials I could be delusional. It could be, uh, you know, based on the Hindu myths. It could be Gnostic. And he just kept playing around, playing around uh, sort of, might say, active imagination, uh, freeform writing or whatever. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's uh, it, I always tell people with the exegesis, just look at it as a wonderful meditative tool. Open it up, read some of it, speculate upon it. And then uh, put them to, parallel them to others of others of his ideas because again it it's not linear it's just uh, it's almost like uh, the soul of the universe opened up and gave all the different ideas that could happen from parallel universes to holographic universe to everything that could be happen and it's all right there in the exegesis. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly unless you just really want to. Um, it's not even something that necessarily should be read linearly it sounds like uh um no, you're courting madness like dick you're courting madness like dick which is what we <laughs> mystics should do right <laughs> <laughs> um so i uh i'd like to ask you i'm going to read um a, a little bit more of some quotes here and then i'd like to ask you you know just open-endedly what you think this said about Philip K. Dick as a person, because you and I are very well familiar with the idea that genius and insanity uh, have a, a, a sizable overlap in the Venn diagram, and uh, and I'm just curious what you think this means in a 
Um, because we've talked about we've we've tossed a lot of mystical language and I'm just curious what you think this means on like a, a real world sort of view um, that that expands outward into the meta into the metaphysics. Like, what do you think he might have been dealing with? You know, what potential psychological things may have snowballed into these revelations? But uh, on the note of his own struggles, before I volley that to you, um, this is uh, I believe this is from The Guardian. But like I said, everything that I'm reading from you'll find in the show notes. Um, uh the exegesis shows the struggle of a highly intelligent man to find a rational explanation for something inexplicable inside himself. Um, and it could make fascinating reading if it was thoughtfully organized, but it, uh, the exegesis pursues its target in the manner of a, a shotgun firing randomly in every possible direction. Dick ruminates, uh, conjugates and associates freely from one topic to the next. He mulls the contents of his dreams, descends into labyrinths of metaphysical hypotheses, and ironically wonders how he can ever use this material to create a publishable book. Uh, nor does he succeed in explaining the source of his visions. Um, and this sounds a little snarky, but the the article gives him his due credit. I uh, just wanted to throw that out there. But uh, the editors of the work acknowledge it could have been merely a stroke residual brain damage uh, from drug use or temporal lobe epilepsy, but they seem unimpressed by pedestrian possibilities. They insist that to approach the, approach the exegesis from any angle at all, a reader must first accept that the subject is revelation. Um, we receive no help from the editors in mapping the tangle, um, but as Richard Doyle, a professor of English and Information Sciences and Technology at Penn State, writes in his afterword, when you begin reading the exegesis, you undertake the quest with no shortcuts or cheat codes. Uh, thus, we're on our own when we ponder sentences like, this is, I, I love these quotes here, um, from the exegesis. This forces me to reconsider the discarding and annexing process by the brain in favor of a proliferation theory. Or, so, irreality and perturbation are the two perplexities which confront us. Or, I dreamed I am the fish whose flesh is eaten, and because I am fat, it is good. Bob Silverberg ate me. <laughs> so what's missing here is context. <laughs> uh, from my interactions with Dick, uh, I know that many of these musings were written while he stayed up all night, sometimes in a, in a, a drug haze while pursuing his favorite source, uh, perusing his favorite source, the Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Uh, he also retained a healthy sense of humor about his supposed tutelary spirit. Uh, quote, on Thursdays and Saturdays, I would think it was God, he told me, while, quote, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, um, I would think it was extra extraterrestrial. And sometimes I would also think it was a Soviet uh, Union Academy of Science Sciences trying out their psychotronic microwave telepathic transmitter. So... <laughs> um, yeah, he covers it all. And like I said, it was conspiracy theory. It was aliens. It was God. It was some sort of higher mind. Uh, everything was on the table with Dick. Yeah. So I guess I, I, I guess my question, open ended, take it wherever you like, is it? it's just it's so curious to me. It's rare that you find anybody, um, let alone someone as so prolific as Philip K. Dick, that seems to be as cogent as he is insane you know what i mean um like he has he has um and i have nothing but respect for the guy but like you know on a technical level he has 
classic paranoia. You know, he's uh, he's very, um, I don't know what the word is, uh, masochistic. Yeah, uh, he's you know he's very. I mean, you hear in any interviews, he he's very self-deprecating, but he has a wit about him too. He doesn't seem to take it too seriously. He is such a fascinating guy, and as I've said already in this conversation, if you only take a small surface level skim, he seems like he's really crazy. So I don't know. What do you think about all that? <laughs> well, what's uh, <clears throat> I remember. Uh... Bishop Stephen Heller from the Gnostic Ecclesia, who's also who's a scholar as well, uh, he always said the difference between a mystic and a madman is that the mystic knows whom not to tell. So uh, <laughs> I don't think any of us are very sane, and some of us have open channels of communication, some of us have better vision. So it is sort of, uh, you might say, relative, if you would. Mm-hmm. But I think, uh, yeah, trying to understand Phil's mind and all the things that uh, affected him is uh, quite an adventure. What <laughs> I think most people miss or kind of gloss over is ve- is a very simple one. And uh, Phil, when he was born, he had a twin called Jane, and she died shortly after. Oh. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> I even say... Uh, uh, Elvis had the same thing. He, his brother uh, Jesse died when he was born, and people. And in my book, my upcoming book, argue. I mean, I think Elvis was more of a mystic than Phil, but he was hiding it because uh, of his stature and the culture around him and everything else. Mm. Phil was Phil was because he was in California, Berkeley. You know, Berkeley hippie and all libertarian. He could just talk and just throw it all out if he wanted to. Just priest, a shrink. He was a sci-fi writer, so he just throw all these ideas in his books. But anyway, most it's it's well known or accepted in society that it you know the death of a twin really affects the other twin. It's a deep thing because they're so bonded psychologically, uh, DNA, all that. Mm-hmm. But what has only really come out in the last generation is the amazing effect when a twin loses a twin at birth. It is hugely monumental and life changing. I mean, I write Dick was doomed from the start. So was Elvis, because, uh, uh, the, for example, there's the work of Peter O. Whitmer that I use. He was actually the drummer for the Turtles, and then he became a uh, uh, psychotherapist and all that but the research shows that when you lose your twin it is co- it is very destructive to your life i mean research shows that twinless survivors have a huge uh inclination for drug addiction bad relationships but at the same time they are extremely um uh, ambitious they are searchers they're workaholics and they are basically this this storm that goes through people's life for better or worse, and they tend to die young. They just self destruct. They, they 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 yeah they explode. The engine just can't take it. And uh, both Elvis and Phil are perfect example. Both were big time amphetamine users. They abused prescriptions. They were extremely uh, uh, d- driven. Uh, they were extremely successful. 
they were just uh, that's really the characteristic of a twinless twin when you go through when you look at other twinless twins in the research. In fact, another one too was Liberace. Now, mm. as you can see, Liberace was very like Elvis was very flamboyant, very driven. And also, in many ways, very self-destructive in his own ways. Phil was that way, too. Phil could be very, he was obviously very flamboyant with his writing and with his conversations with people. They're always, these twinless twins are always looking for the bigger question because they cannot understand why they survived and the twin didn't. What happened? Did I put my foot on the throat while we were in the, while we were in the belly? Uh we both came under the same conditions. We had the basically the same body. Research shows that twins will dance and play. So they're like one soul in the womb. And they can't. Wow. And it really breaks their heart. It breaks their mind. I mean, and I don't even have to look at research because Dick was very open that he said that the the most significant and monumental event of his life was the death of his twin, Jane. And his entire life, all his writings was trying to figure out why it happened and uh, what it meant for the universe at large. And of course, twinless twins tend to be very dualistic. They think uh, they really separate into us and them and light and darkness, uh, fame and failure. I mean, but they take it to huge extremes, very dualistic because they're always trying to figure out what happened to their twin and where is their twin? And again, Dick was very open. He said everything he wrote was trying to figure out why Jane had died and what it meant for the larger questions of the universe. He even said in an interview about Jane, he has this quote saying, well, I guess I got the other milk. I get, I'm sorry, I guess I got all the milk. So mm. there's this massive guilt and pain to twinless survivors that, again, kind of feeds into their a driven, workaholic, self-destructive, bipolar uh, essence. And again, Dick is a perfect example. Uh, Elvis Presley is, Liberace, and there's many others. So that right there tells you why Phil was Phil in the end. Wow. Yeah, that's an angle that I was unfamiliar with, but it makes perfect sense. Um, and the twin research is fascinating, too. Uh, I... I don't know a, a set of twins that uh you know where one was a survivor, but I do have in the family uh some older family members. Um one is a surviving twin and one died when they were in their mid-30s. And um from just seeing that, uh, I can say with what little experience I have that it it is truly uncanny seeing uh what kind of effect yeah that'll have on you. It it certainly uh, destroyed this individual a bit and yeah uh, it's like it's you uh yeah you live thinking half of you is missing and where's this other half you know yeah. and yeah and that's probably what uh really drove uh dick to the gnostics because as you know the gnostics were obsessed with syzygies and and pairs and all that if there's a jesus there's a sophia and everything has a counterpart both in heaven and earth and we have a higher self and all this other stuff. So the idea of dualities is huge in us and obviously big with Carl Jung, you know, if, you know, everything casts a shadow and we have a counterpart within us and all that. So all of that certainly probably uh, led Phil to, um, 
two Gnostic ideas. And of course, uh, and I write in the book with Elvis, it also led him to very similar ideas. Yeah, interesting. Um, well, I uh, I do want to get into Elvis soon here. So with uh, as some final cherries on top here, um, beginning to uh, sweep it all in, bring it around home plate. Um, I think... You know, I, I I came across in a couple articles. Granted, no one followed through with this comparison, uh, but it hadn't even crossed my mind before, and I thought it was an interesting note to bring up. Um, the fact that if you only knew this story of PKD from a surface level, someone that might ring kind of similar is uh, L. Ron Hubbard. You know, like the. Uh, uh, Philip K. Dick was so metaphysical. He was he was getting very spiritual and philosophical and more open about it um, towards the end of his life. But if you look into if you just look into Philip K. Dick at all, I mean, Hubbard was a trash writer, uh, for one. And <laughs> um, it's, you know, his actions speak for themselves over and over and over again um, of a PKD. You know, he he was very timid about talking to people about talking with people uh, about these things. And, um, you know, he only told people like one of his wives, uh, the wife he had that, you know, while uh, some of these initial experiences were happening and some very close friends, you know, he never intended the exegesis to be published. Um, his family was um, worried that the the publication of it might attract unwanted attention. Um, and the, you know, he, I guess one of the biggest factors being he was always willing to hear someone else's side of the story. And that is, I mean, if you're looking for some sort of clear indication that someone is not a manipulative personality, it's that right there. Um, if, you know, if there's n no single instance, like if, if Philip K. Dick is such a milquetoast individual, so mild mannered that um, he is you know, willing to give people credence when they're being derogatory and calling him crazy. You know, he says, yeah, yeah, you know, I might be a little crazy. Like he's, oh, there's, yeah. there's no agenda in, in any single instance. Um, he's just truly a philosopher and a man trying to uh, just figure out what the fuck happened to him and what is, is happening to him. And um, I've always been so deeply inspired by his honesty he never really, even when it seemed like in interviews where you can listen to him talk, even when he seemed hesitant to get into subject matter that was personal, he never really shied away from it. Um, I heard him apologize over and over for rambling, even though this person was interviewing him. You know, he's just one of those kinds of people. And um, yeah, I uh, I think Philip K. Dick is... You know, not only is his writing extremely legendary for a reason, but I think, you know, uh, perhaps why his legacy persists so much and is inspirational to me is because his thoughts, his 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 life and his philosophy in particular is just as insightful as his work. You know, he was just as much a philosopher when it's all said and done as he was a science fiction author. And that makes it a. Uh, that makes looking into the life and times of a uh, PKD really daunting. Oh yeah. He was a seeker. He was seeking the bigger, he was seeking to understand reality. I mean, and what did he say? And then was it an interview where he says, uh, 
its two main goals was trying to understand what makes what is a human and what is reality and that was the struggle again those two du dualities that he was always looking for and uh, a lot of it that depends again happened in childhood i mean you're talking about l ron hubbard i don't know I, obviously i have my opinions about him but i don't know that much about him because the two questions that are simple when you're trying to figure people out and as much as people don't want this sort of simplistic view, but it's true is one, if you're looking in the conspiracy world, it's follow the money, right? Where right. does the money go? Who benefits? And you can find out about a person. The other question is, sorry, but uh, what were your mommy and daddy issues and what childhood trauma you have? And people don't want to look at that, but I'm like, you know, these archetypes are powerful when we are young we are like computers just absorbing everything and our consciousness is developing and one trauma like losing your twin or losing your parent when you're young or that can define you for uh, your entire life and sorry but uh, mommy and daddy issues matter you look at again going back to the twinless thing it was interesting because when uh, after Dick was born, his mother, Dorothy, became very detached to the world. And um, it can't blame her, right? She lost one of her children in really bad conditions. Uh, mm -hmm. can, we can talk about, you know, there was poverty involved and uh, other things. And, uh, and Phil even started blaming her for the death of his sister. And that created a bad tension between Dick and women, but it also created uh, this play space where he's trying to understand women and the divine women, feminine and all that. And Elvis is the opposite. When uh, his twin died, his mother became very attached to him. She went the opposite of K. Dick's mother. Hmm. He, you know, he was the world. He put her up. He was the king already. And that also did damage to Elvis because it was, uh, you know, classic... Uh, toxic um, helicopter parenting, but it also helped uh, Elvis with this huge confidence, this huge drive where he thought he could do anything, right? He could be this uh, guy who didn't know how to read music, uneducated, who just walked into a studio and said, I want to record. And, you know, then a year or two later, he's like the biggest star in the world. So these things matter. And again, people want to, gloss it over or ignore it because i always hear people uh doing research with elvis or dick is like oh so he lost a twin when he was young big deal he got over it that's not what makes you an adult and i'm like we don't forget anything as children we don't we absorb everything and it causes deep damage and mm -hmm. unfortunately psychology and spirituality haven't caught up so individuals like dick and elvis who were born in the 30s they don't get the healing that they need and you know how it is. You start creating your own shadow, your own monsters, your own uh, dark uh, selves, if you would. And sometimes it's good. Both uh, uh, Dick and Elvis, their dead twin, became their daemon and actually became a voice in their head and actually was there to help them out during many situations in their life. They become, uh, they're always talking to this other voice. So you can call it crazy, but you know, Look at their resumes, right? Look how they changed the world. Yeah. There's two figures that change history uh, in so many ways. And it's interesting, too, because Dick was always warning about technology. He thought, it's going to destroy us. It's evil. we got to be careful. While Elvis was always like, 
technology is great. I'm on TV. I'm, I'm doing satellite concerts. I'm in the jukebox. I want to spend more money on equipment. So interesting how these things happen. But yeah, follow the money and go to your childhood trauma or go to the child trauma of an individual. Yeah. Trauma doesn't heal. As they say, trauma is timeless. It does not heal. It's always there. And you would agree. The shadow is always there. The complexes are always there. The question is, can we integrate them or will they destroy us in the end because we're so fragmented? Yeah, yeah. And um, on a, a side note feeding into that, you made me think of, um, although they weren't twins, you know, Johnny Cash lost his uh, his brother at an early age and it was very um, vocal, you know, throughout his life about how I believe his uh, brother's name was Jack, like how Jack seemed to inspire and be a a primary driving force for Johnny Cash throughout his personal and his uh, his personal life and his career. So, yeah, interesting. Um, Yeah, I mean, both with uh, Johnny and Elvis. Yeah, he had two driving forces, their dead brother and Jesus. Now, Elvis mm -hmm. had a more cosmic Jesus kind of a the cosmic Jesus and Christ consciousness and uh, Johnny Cash had a more traditional Jesus image. And, but they were both really driven by gospel. I think people forget how shamanistic altered state of mind Pentecostalism is. And with figures like Elvis, Johnny Cash, little Richard uh, and others, it was all about the sort of um, Pentecostal altered state of mind. And, and that was a huge part of their success because they could just go into another world and tap into these energies and bring this sound that the world had never heard before. Well, what an easy segue for me there, Miguel. Um, Will, uh, I'll ask you about, um, you know, a final closing comment um, at the end here about PKD. But uh, yeah, let's talk about Elvis a bit. And I will uh, I'll preface that um, before I volley it over to you by saying I don't know an extreme amount about Elvis, but I do know a reasonable amount. And a lot of that actually comes from um, my fascination over time with Johnny Cash. So um, I always in I guess in that kind of Blade Runner sense, I always was really attracted to, as I guess so many people are, the uh, the way Johnny Cash, you know, melded that sort of glitzy idealism he was an idealist but he was such a realist and you know everything was uh was uh very very gritty you know especially for the time and the way he he sort of uh balanced those two scales at once was something that i always gravitated towards but um and i know that there was a lot of overlap you know and you see elvis in and out throughout the movie walk the line with joaquin phoenix so I know about the time period and the music scene more than I do Elvis's life. So I'm really interested to hear this. Uh, take it wherever you like. Yeah, it's interesting. I, when I was laughing, I was thinking when people are asking me about Christian Gnosticism, I'd say, oh, uh, let me give you something that might help. Yeah, or three things that we talked about. Read Philip K. Dick's Valis. The other one is read Kierkegaard. The other one is listen to Johnny Cash. You'll get Christian Gnosticism right That, Like I said, it's a sort of gritty existentialist vibe. But at the same time, of course, it is all about this Christ within us, the hope, the glory. So Beautiful. I always like to tell people, yeah, check it out. And I know when I need to 
when I'm stuck in my Gnostic ideas, I will put some Johnny Cash and it's like, Oh, I get it now. <laughs> or I'll read Vallis. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically the thesis is, um, which, uh, most of the world is either again, like the idea of twinless twins or Philip K. Dick's very important vision of the evil face in the sky, which Elvis had this uh, very similar vision, but they don't realize how into the occult Elvis was. And again, my book, there's okay, there is a million conspiracy and sen sensationalistic books about Elvis, TV shows. I mean, he used to be on the tabloids, you know, remember the era you'd go to the store and the National Enquirer and all that. He was like a one man conspiracy uh, uh, corporation. And there's <laughs> lots of books. And, and some of these books are not just written by people saying, you know, he was an alien and all that, but some some of the books were written by uh, conservative Christians. From the moment he came out, people thought he was a tool of the devil, and he kind of was because he was a the blues was very important to him, and uh, the blues is obviously based on African animistic uh, magic, which of course brings in the trickster, which brings this sort of a devil figure that is very that appears over and over in the blues. Um, but he was very much in the occult, and uh, what drove him there was, uh, of course, more tragedy. The death of his mother was huge. Again, he and his mother were like had this very close and very, dis I would say, dysfunctional relationship. And other things that happened in the book, I go, with Elvis, it was like one tragedy after the other, something that broke him and kept breaking him. Uh and uh, at some point in the 60s, he I mean, he was always very open minded person, uh, especially in this when he came out and his own pastor turned on him and people like Billy Graham were denouncing him. Politicians were denouncing. He was dangerous. He was satanic. He was upending the status quo. He became very disillusioned with uh, with Christianity. And he was in, but he was always open minded when he was in the army in the late fifties, he would talk to people about reincarnation. He loved Khalil Gibrain, the prophet. He, he did aroma therapy. He was always open minded, but in the early sixties, he became even more disillusioned with his life, even though he had hundreds of millions in the bank and he was the number one box office star in the world. And he was already the goat when it came to rock music. He was, you know, he was already in the hall of fame. Uh, uh, he was already he he'd made his um, he'd made his place in history, but he met somebody. His hairdresser uh, was very much a very spiritual guy. He started talking to his hairdresser, and he just went off to the races. He became a devotee of Yogananda, Blavatsky, Manly P. Hall. He started consuming all these Freemason theosophical. Uh, books. He started reading the I Ching. Wow. He started reading uh, stuff like the Gospel of Thomas, the Book wow. of Enoch. Uh, whatever it is, you name it, he started reading it. Holy shit! And he became just this. And he started practicing too. He started doing <laughs> obviously yoga, meditation. Later on, he would start doing sex magic with his fiance. He would do all these weird prayers and. Uh, yeah, he practiced all these mental exercises, and he became just a huge occultist. I mean, I haven't only scratched the surface of the stuff he was into, but he was also a natural-born uh, magician. Um, he could heal people, and he could heal 
He could manipulate the weather. He could manipulate matter. He could do out-of-body things. He could do prophecy. He could read people's minds. And just you go through these through his life and you go, oh, my God, he's like the greatest occultist in North America and Europe has ever seen. It was insane. And my book, again, there's a lot of uh, sensationalistic stuff, but I take it from the horse's mouth. This I find from Priscilla Presley from the Memphis Mafia, from family, friends, girlfriends, uh, all people that were around him would see the stuff of Elvis and uh, see what he would do. I mean, he would get people together like uh, he got a, a signed copy of The Secret Teachings of the Ages. And he, he went to the studio and he got all the musicians to sit around and decode esoteric symbols. And he would tell people, if you can understand these symbols, you will understand the secrets of life. And it's the most amazing uh, figure that I've seen when it comes to the occult and uh, why it's been hidden, why nobody noticed. Uh, well, I have my theories, but it's pretty amazing. Wow. Wow. It, um, all throughout, um, I, I, the inside in my, in my mind's eye, I was equally as fascinated as I was humored because I could just imagine Elvis in his Elvis voice, just really deeply philosophizing and like blowing your mind. <laughs> but at the same time, it's just, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's awesome. Yeah, like, uh, <laughs> let's talk about the ascended masters and you know, uh, what do you guys think of uh, Von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods? Would be ready? Yeah. Do you believe in, ex you know, all this other stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and he had many. Uh, he had he had extraterrestrial encounters. He had about three really? of them or four. Yeah. And he was very much into the whole thing, into the ancient astronauts, uh, all that stuff. I mean, he would be here listening to this podcast if he was alive and being like, yeah, this is my stuff or Oh. Yeah, we would have no problem with, uh, you know, the red pill culture. Um, so I, uh, two parts. Um, one, I uh, like, I'm curious to hear what you think about why this story has not been brought to light. Um, because, um, unless you feel like there is like an active campaign to keep it a secret, um, you're gonna, you're gonna low key change change the narrative a little bit you know like you're gonna low-key his history <laughs> a bit yeah this is huge like this is like this is like when all of a sudden everyone realized that on record you know the beach boys were friends with charles manson and now like <laughs> and now everyone knows it like 10 years from now it's going to be potentially the way i see it it's going to be commonplace people are going to be like oh yeah you didn't know that elvis was a freaking full-blown magician um <laughs> So that's crazy, man. You really tapped into a unique vein here. And it goes to show that, uh, you know, even in today's day and age of information overload, there's still plenty that uh, is waiting to, you know, reach the collective eye. And uh, and so why do you think this hasn't yet? Well, I'm still trying to speculate on it. And again, when I started writing this book in February, I didn't know anything about Elvis. I was always a Beatles person per uh -huh. uh, her Pulp Fiction, the, the Mia Wallace speech that she gives uh, Vincent Vega, there's only two types of people in the world, Elvis people, Beatles. I always thought I was a <laughs> Beatles person. Right, but then yeah. uh, I did ayahuasca and a voice in my head, and I, I went down this rabbit hole, and I was like, whoa, how? I mean, again, this is all in, like, you can go to Priscilla Presley's biography right now and open it. It says how 
she had headaches, Elvis would just put his hand on her head and cure her headaches. Or their grandmother that lived with Elvis, she had uh, arthritis, and Elvis did all these rituals and cured of her arthritis. I mean, or you go to some of the exposés of his bodyguards, and they're talking about this UFO experience they had together, or how Elvis wow. could uh, move bush. He would like put a hand out, and clouds would move, and bushes would uh, start shaking. <clears throat> so, and you go. Well, this is all out in the open. It's the, there's no secret here. You just go to all these biographies and there's sections and uh, two things. Maybe sometimes the world is just not ready. I think the world is ready in 2023. I know as a Elvis is an archetypal figure, we have a vision of what they look like. And we have those with the founding fathers and Jesus. And when we're not ready to see them as they are, we're just not ready, both as a culture and uh, as a country. And maybe it's time to see it. The other one, too, is that, uh, yeah, there's all these things, but there there was always uh, protection around Elvis. He drove people crazy because, like, the Memphis Mafia would be like, hey, you, let's go play some flag football. And Elvis would be like, no, no, we got to sit there and let's read this book about spirituality and contemplate. And they'd be like, oh, fuck. <laughs> uh, so people, people were like, Elvis was this but we have this image that we want to show to the world and many people around him didn't like it because they were traditional americans and so they sort of uh i don't know about suppress it but they sort of memory hold it um and the other thing too is that with elvis he lived the most insane life a life where it was concerts and parties and uh, celebrities showing up and we're traveling on our private jet, jet when I feel like it. And it was this chaotic, insane life that everybody around him had to, uh, I don't know, endure or not suffer because a lot of it was a blast that the whole supernatural Elvis was just part of his bigger persona. And it just sort of uh, got forgotten or overlooked. People would say, you know, bodyguards and friends would say yeah the the miracles and the magic was one thing but then there was the the parties and the flying to hollywood to do movies and studios and uh him waking up and saying i want to fly to colorado to get a fried peanut butter and banana sandwich at one in the morning it was just it was wow. this sort of uh it was like hermes on steroids i call elvis the hermes of our era because it was just it was so chaotic it was something that you have to like people writing biographies would have to sit down years later and sort of stop. And even the newspapers, it was always the newspapers and tabloids were always pumping out stories of Elvis. It was just this giant chaos theory storm. And his magic was just part of the part of the butterfly effect. I don't know if this is a good analogy, but having said that, I think it's just a time when, we as a society are more open to it and it's time for this other very overlooked story which you know i do in whatever 250 pages i've got like you know 300 citations and it, they're all from people around elvis and they all knew of his magic tricks and occult ideas and uh astral traveling and miracle working and beliefs and all these strange theories for for them Man, wow, you're really blowing my mind right now, man. And and I and I gotta tell you, um, you know, salute to you because um 
this is really given me and i'm gonna call it right now i think you got some real good shit in the future this has given me like weird scenes inside the canyon like dave mcgowan kind of vibes uh oh yeah yeah minus uh, all of the uh nefarious implications but i remember um hearing interviews uh with dave mcgowan before he died um where he you know i i believe he got the book like from his daughter or something or uh you know a family member and it was something he was reading on vacation and then all of a sudden he just started to notice all these commonalities about um you know just weird backgrounds people like you know uh, coming from military families and you know hanging out with charles manson all this strange stuff going on in laurel canyon in the music scene and he's just like, wait a second, you know, I'm not reading some obscure internet forums here. This is this is just a biography of like the Doors or some shit like that. And uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, a, you know, and he has to look into it a little more. And then all of a sudden, he, you know, he can't unsee it. And then he just has to put it out there. And and you know, not everyone knows Dave McGowan's name, but if anyone is vaguely interested in conspiracy theories even from a skeptical point of view almost everybody in that field is familiar with the idea that some dude wrote a really interesting book about all the conspiracy theories you know going on in the in the music scene and uh right. um i i could i could easily see i would be almost surprised if you, if this didn't reach a similar level man elvis is integral to the american to you know to to the fabric of america at this point so you know I, yeah that's uh that's so exciting man and um um well don't don't thank me this was uh mother ayahuasca and elvis both of them nagged me to do this so i simply uh i simply did and i would tell your listeners too and everybody follow the other advice that i said would be on follow the money and look at your childhood trauma follow the synchronicities because uh there are synchronicities happening right now and they are telling you where you need to lean into like what happened with me with the Elvis book. And there was a lot of synchronicities that led to the ayahuasca and then a lot of synchronicities and voices. And if you follow these, you're going to, then you will go down the road to the perfect data. If you know, that's your mission to create something, to find some truth, uh, whether it's the truth about your family, some figure or, the truth about where you need to go in your life as a career and a person. But yeah, follow the things, lean into them and you'll be fine. Again, nothing, it shouldn't even be controversial, right? It's what, you know, Dick and Jung and all these guys were talking about. Uh, so that's Amen. definitely my advice. I don't know well, if Dave McGowan did it. I, I don't know much of life. I mean, I love his work, but I don't know. I guess he, what, he just saw a pattern. Um, I believe so. Yeah, I think he, uh, if I remember correctly, um, um, he was literally on vacation just reading a book to specifically unplug from all his conspiracy stuff and then just could, <laughs> couldn't help but see patterns like hanging out on the beach and just like, well, damn it, I can't not see this now. So I have to write this book. <laughs> um, yeah, lean into it because, yeah, if you go against your soul or the gods or whatever, then it's going to be very painful. Or worse, you'll live an average life. All of us have the ability to live an, ex live an extraordinary life if we listen to what uh, what the voices are saying, what the gods are saying, what the universe wants us to do. Amen, man. Well, that is in and of itself a beautiful cherry on top. But I'd like to give you the floor to 
you know, uh, give any um, final thoughts, uh, sentiments on uh, either Elvis and or uh, Philip K. Dick? Well, again, both were seekers. They were history changing seekers who uh, were looking for the bigger questions and were trying to understand things. Yes, they were, you know, uh, barring from the song, caught in a trap from the moment they were born and uh they were broken but they kept uh they kept doing what they need to do and uh that's the idea which i use in my book across uh cultures from various different shamanistic cultures there's the idea of the the wounded healer and that's an individual who is broken who has immense trauma but those are the individuals who have this second sight and can see into the spirit world they can see into the future of the tribe, and they are an, a, a very important part of the tribe. They are shamans, but they are also, again, they are completely broken. But because they are broken, they're not really broken because they understand how to heal people. They understand how to see. They see the world and the universe as one, and they understand the direction of where the tribe or individuals need to go. So uh, as Jung would say, yes, um, nobody is broken you can find your mission even if you think the most think the most horrible things happen to you and you think you can't overcome them you do have a purpose and sometimes the wounds is what open the channels to the divine and our true selves damn man this has been a batshit crazy conversation in the best of ways this has been really cool um we went to all corners of the uh the strange and esoteric uh whether it be metaphysics or or conspiracy or uh speculative fiction and the like um i think uh if nothing else um you know because both elvis and uh pkd are hard men to to really uh encapsulate but they both seem to be you know if you want to try and find a way to do it um very chaos magical um and oh yeah i uh i really yeah i'm gonna have to look into elvis a bit more now you've definitely sparked my curiosity um whenever i can understand the the questions that the artist was wrestling with it makes me appreciate the art that much more you know i i don't need or ne or necessarily want to hear someone's interpretations of the art because you know art is sort of that rorschach kaleidoscopic um you know interaction and it's a it's it's meant to be individualistic in that way but but when you can understand the inspiration it 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 really really uh paints it in a whole new light and um yeah so i yeah. guess you know for yeah um, even even your uh yeah even next time listen to his music and feel the pain yeah and the searching even with his vegas outfits <laughs> it was uh, that so easy, you know, how he's dressed. He was simply trying to copy his hero, which was Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel Jr. Because That's he true. lived in, Elvis lived in such abject poverty. Like some nights all he could eat was uh, cornbread and water. So he, 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 one of his ways of escaping was comic books. And he began, and he loved Captain Marvel Jr., who was this poor kid who was crippled, who turned into the savior of the world. So he started... His outfits are based on Captain Marvel, you know, the short cape and everything else. And then the high collars, he read one time that he was looking at some 
book about uh, spiritual masters, and he noticed that one com- commonality was their high collars. Huh. So he so he started using wearing high collars. Most people think he's trying to be like Napoleon. It's like no, he really thought he was like an ascended master. So wow. when you see these things, you realize, oh, this is not just some goofy extroverted uh, consumer show that Elvis was doing. It was really all part of a a very spiritual thing that he did. Fascinating. Okay, final uh, a final brief question that I uh, I have to ask now. We uh we explored the integrity of Philip K. Dick a, a fair amount. Now it seems like Elvis was a was a pretty cool you know seeker as you put it. But w- did did he uh, did he come across like he was a legendary rock star? So how much of him was just a total like Motley Crue level douchebag, or was he a pretty legit? Like a, a a guy you'd like to buy a drink and have a chat with. Oh, certainly. He was very approachable, even at cool. the height of his career. Even when he was, his mind was so drug uh, addled and he couldn't, he was, you know, in, in his fat Elvis stage, he was still very approachable. He was very kind. He was the kind of person that if he heard like a friend of him needed an operation or uh, somebody in the band or needed something, he would just like write a hundred thousand dollar check or he would try to talk to them on a personal level about their problem. I mean, both Elvis and Dick, again, we go to this this polarity thing, could be so kind and empathic and friendly. And Elvis never, his status didn't matter to him. He was so, you could just sit there and talk to him and you talk about everything. But they both, because of, again, their past, the drugs, uh, the extreme workaholism and their sort of self-destructive path did have tendencies of being extremely cruel at times, extremely aloof. And uh, yeah, they, they, they did their damage. And again, losing their twins, mommy issues, they always had trouble in relationships with women. They just could not, they just couldn't work things out. I think Bill was married five times. And of course, Elvis, forget about it. You know, yeah. he, <laughs> he had women galore. And some of the time he just had women as friends. Uh, but uh, it was just it was messy. Well, yeah, both uh, both very flawed. But I um, when it sounds like with both people and um, especially Philip K. Dick, from what uh, I'm familiar with, um, they both seem to be very open about their flaws and readily willing to question them and investigate and you know integrate and and transmutate so you know salute to both of those dudes and uh and thank you so much for coming back on the program miguel um it's it's a genuine pleasure as always man always fun man thanks um would you like to give people um you know all the uh the necessary info on where they can find your latest action my latest action, yeah, just go to my homepage, thegodabovegod.com, or type in the search bar, A-on-bite, A-E-O-N. Next next word is uh, bite, B-Y-T-E, Gnostic Radio. There's my website with my podcast, books, uh, videos, uh, articles, uh, whatever. There's a whole bunch of stuff if you want to learn about Gnostic and Hermetic thought. Nothing on Elvis yet, because again, the book just got accepted by a publisher so uh i gotta figure out my my elvis online strategy (laughs) which will include making a lot of elvis fans angry because they don't want to a lot of them don't want to hear it they think he was just a a good old boy protestant country boy who 
Yeah, they're going to be pissed in Nashville. They're going to be pissed in Nashville. (laughs) (laughs) So, but I can't wait to see that. Um, And uh, yeah, you, you, uh, you heard it here, folks. I got the, uh, the big time freaking Elvis expose author on well before he became known as the big time Elvis expose author. (laughs) So, uh, but yeah, this is Black Hoodie Alchemy. I am Anthony Tyler here on the Fringe FM. We've been talking with Miguel Connor of Aeon Bite Gnostic Radio, um, uh, a, 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 a real gem of an individual, just like um, our two subjects today. And um, yeah, I hope all you listeners out there enjoyed the conversation, got something out of it. Keep your eyes peeled from Miguel's book. It will be coming out next year. And uh, yeah, take care out there. Smoke weed and God bless. As we break free from times of chains, lines of pain, the devil tormented to the minds insane. Rise again from the ashes, fall and rise to fame. Eyes of pain burn circles through the fabric of life. On average night, the satellites be watching the plot. They got us caged in space to the dollars and clocks. Got a gang called the cops that got us on lock. We fly a burning flag, democratic process engulfed in flames. Where justice is supply, man, begging for your change. And nothing's guaranteed but taxes and debt. You get both if you pay the crash of passing. Don't make sense how we go broke waiting on paychecks Stomach pain, sweat to maintain just to pay rent Poor man, indigenous to dead enslavement Righteous man protest the dead upon the pavement The struggle got me stressed Weight on my chest, feel like a lead vest When can I sleep when? Can I let my head rest? The struggle got me stressed Weight on my chest, feel like a lead vest When can I sleep when? Can I let my head rest?